Welcome to the Topeka First podcast. We are one church with several locations. Our mission is to reach our community with the message of Jesus. If you would like to give to support this podcast and the ministries of our church, please visit topekafirst.com giving. Enjoy the podcast. So today may be the most difficult sermon I have ever preached, okay? Um, why, you ask? Uh, well, we're attempting to cover two topics um, which are both eternal in 30 minutes, okay? So um, if you're going to try and cover two topics that are both eternal in 30 minutes, there's a little bit of a, a problem. But, uh, you know, hey, we'll, we are going to see what happens. So if you haven't figured it out yet, and I, you know, and I guess, um, you know, it's heaven and hell. So um, we're in the midst of our questions series. And one of the questions that we were asked was, what happens when we die? Does a Christian immediately go to heaven when they die? First Thessalonians 4.16 says, and this was part of the question, it says the believers who have died will rise from their graves. Does this mean we don't go to heaven until the rapture? Nice. And then they threw in just that slight, um, you know, hint towards um, end time events and trying to figure out we're not going to go there, but we're going to talk about heaven and hell. Um, so let's read First Thessalonians four, sixteen says, "For the Lord Himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. First, the believers who have died will rise from their graves. Then, together with them, we who are still alive." and remain on the earth, will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. So encourage each other with these words. And so this is where the question came from. Um, You know, and it basically right there, first the believers who have died will rise from their graves, and together with them, we are still alive and remain on the earth, will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So so that's where it comes from. And, And one of the outcomes that I hope that happens today is that we'll have a better theological understanding of heaven and hell and that it motivates us to share the message of Jesus more. Um, I realize that that many um, have experienced over the years a, a real understanding of what eternity seems like and 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 you know Growing up in a Pentecostal church, if you did so, you you, you were familiar with um, hell, fire, and brimstone. Okay, you were you were used to that. Um, you're very familiar. In fact, oftentimes you were concerned when you couldn't find a family member that you had missed the rapture. Okay. Now, there's something unhealthy about that, but there's something healthy about that. Okay. So, and that's the tension that we live in with this specific topic. So, according to the Pew Research Center, if America had 100 people, 55 would believe in heaven and hell, okay, which is a pretty amazing number, honestly. Um, 17 would believe in heaven, but not hell. Uh, three would believe in hell, but not heaven. Those people are really messed up. And 25 would believe in neither. Okay, so, so 55% of Americans, according to the Pew Research Center, believe in heaven and hell. 17 believe in heaven but not hell. 3 believe in hell but not heaven. And 25% don't believe in either one. And it's good news and both bad news. 
Okay? Unfortunately, as happened in the first century, many people within the church uh, end up, ended up with some beliefs that were more like the culture at large. And the same thing is happening today, right? Paul wrote many of his letters to correct beliefs that were not right and how people had possibly infiltrated the church and were teaching false doctrines. So in many ways, um, I want to just take a couple moments and kind of walk through a few of those things to give us an introduction to the topics of heaven and hell. Really, they need to work together, um, and this is just an introduction, right? We're not, we're not going to go too far. Uh, but, but we're going to start with the more depressing topic of the two. Uh, let's start with, what does the Bible say about hell, okay? Um, first off, it's real, okay? There is much we don't know on the subject, but we have to start with what we do know and what we have written in the pages of Scripture. So we'll start with a few of Jesus' words on the subject. So Matthew 10, 28 says this, Don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body. They cannot touch your soul. Fear only God who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And then the end of Jesus' teaching in Matthew 25 on the final judgment gives us this. 25, 46 says, And they will go away, into eternal punishment, but the righteous will go to eternal life. And so when you start to see this, you see that Jesus affirmed this, this eternal punishment and eternal life. He uses the terms that we come from with hell, and so we see that. But Mark 9.42, a little more, a larger passage of Scripture, uh, we're going to read to verse 50. But it says, But if you cause one of these little ones who trusted me to fall into sin, it would be better for you to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone hung around your neck. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter eternal life with only one hand than to go into the unquenchable fires of hell with two hands. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter eternal life with only one foot than to be thrown into hell with two feet. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. It's better to enter the kingdom of God with only one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. Now, we see a repeating thought here. Where the maggots never die and the fire never goes out. For everyone will be tested with fire. Salt is good for seasoning, but if it loses its flavor, how do you make it salty again? You must have the qualities of salt among yourselves and live in peace with each other. We go on to Jude, which is, you know, one of those unusual you know, books way back in the back of the Bible. But Jude, verse 7, says, And don't forget Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighboring towns, which were filled with immorality and every kind of sexual perversion. These, those cities were destroyed by fire and serve as a warning of the eternal fire of God's judgment. Revelation 20, verse 15, says, The death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. And anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown in the lake of fire. Now, that was really encouraging. Right? I mean, all that. I mean, when you begin to, like, if you start to talk about, this is one of the reasons we don't like to talk about it. We don't like to talk about the subject of hell because it makes us uncomfortable. There's something about hell that is uncomfortable. There's something about hell that when we talk about it, we it almost seems as if it is impossible and incongruent with the love of God. Okay? We struggle with that. And there's way more than this. Um, and that's a quick, quick, just quick 
uh, summary of what the Bible teaches about hell. And if we aren't convinced of the reality of hell, it will affect our willingness and our drive to share the message of Jesus. If we view hell as a temporary place, there is no necessity to preach the gospel to people because hell is a simply a layover between death and eternal life. Uh, you could view it a little like sitting in rush hour traffic in Dallas. I don't believe the Bible teaches that idea. Yet it is very prevalent in our world today. There are many who want to focus so heavily on the love of God that they can't bring themselves to believe that there's really a hell. And if there really is a hell, that it's just this, this little, uh, little blip on the radar where it's going to clean everything up and get it ready for a bit. I'm telling you, that's what some of the theology is now. Uh, the belief is that God would never allow anyone to be sent to hell because he is loving and kind. I mean, it sounds so right. I mean, we know that God doesn't want any to perish, right? That same verse tells us that he wants all to come to repentance, which means change. The unfortunate thing is that we want this to be true. We want everyone, even our loved ones who never followed Jesus, who didn't have time for God, and their lives to somehow be spared. The good thing is we are not the judges. God is and he judges perfectly. Let's go back to the subject of God's love, right? In fact, I think that God's love demands hell. I know that sounds crazy. Love is often used as this argument against hell. Love is actually an argument for hell. Okay, and here's the, here's the logic behind it. Love cannot act forcefully, only persuasively. Okay, God cannot use force. He can only woo. He can only persuade. He can only invite. See, because if he didn't, see, love demands that those who do not wish to follow God must be allowed to do so. They, they must not be forced to love him. Those who do not wish to be with him must be allowed separation, right? And so that's what love is. Love is allowing people to go their own way at the same time being deeply hurt by it, okay? And that's the tough part, right? It's hard to allow people to, to make decisions and, and to go away that you know is going to lead to destruction, but there's nothing you can do. Look, on a, on, a, on a micro level, on a small side, you, you can see it in kids, right? If you demand conformity and you never allow space to make decisions, okay? And, I, and I'm not saying this in a crazy way. I'm just saying that if you never give them the opportunity and you, you, you force compliance, there will come a day when they will go their own direction, right? Now, th th there's also wisdom here in how to navigate that tension and how to help them make decisions and get there, but, but love, in this case with God, demands choice. It demands option. He is not forcing anyone to follow. He wants everyone to follow. 
He wants everyone to repent. But he's not going to force any. Now, we sang a song this morning. Every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's absolutely true. The problem is for some, it's going to be at the great right throne judgment. It's going to be in that Revelation 20, verse 14 area. Not by choice. And in that moment, as we read the scriptures, it's done at that point. Now, the, you know, the, uh, one of the other views among followers of Christ today and in culture is it's a, there, even though there can be widespread agreement that hell is real, the debates are what's its purpose, right? And, and, and there's traditional views and, and, and more different views, but bottom line is traditional view would say hell is eternal. People go there by choice. It was not created for them. It was not created for people. It was created for Satan and the, the fallen angels. It was created there and, and then people end up there because of their choice not to follow Christ. Okay. So that's really heavy. All right, so that's that's the hell side of things. So to lighten up for a moment, um, a country preacher was preaching on the subject of heaven, and we're going to go to heaven now. Um, well, we're not going to go to heaven now, but I mean, we're going to talk about heaven. But a country preacher was preaching on the subject of heaven and said to a small congregation, how many of you want to go to heaven? And everybody's like, yeah, we want to go to heaven, except for one little boy. And the preacher looked at the little boy and said, don't you want to go to heaven? The little boy said, yes, pastor, I, I want to go to heaven. But I thought you were getting a load up for tonight. And that's sometimes how we think of heaven. Right? Because we, we want to go to heaven. Just not yet. Right? We... we we love life a little too much that we don't want to get there yet. So let's talk about heaven. What happens when we die? We'll look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, which I thought for a moment Pastor Mike was getting ready to read this. And I thought, well, there goes part of the sermon. But he, he jumped my verses and went to some others that are really, really good which I think inform what you see here, which is really good. Because if you don't understand this, that, that part of, of becoming a new person and becoming uh, ambassadors or, or representatives for Christ, uh, as, you know, as if he's making his appeal through us, we don't see it. But 2 Corinthians 5.1 says, For we know that when this earthly tent we live in is taken down, that is, when we die and leave this earthly body, we will have a house in heaven, an eternal body made for us by God himself and not by human hands. We grow weary in our present bodies and we long to put on our heavenly bodies like new clothing. For we will put on heavenly bodies. We will not be spirits without bodies. While we live in these earthly bodies, we groan and sigh. But it's not that we want to die and get rid of these bodies that clothe us. Rather, we want to put on our new bodies so that these dying bodies will be swallowed up by life. God himself has prepared us for this. 
And as a guarantee, he has given us his Holy Spirit. And it's a great statement. We won't spend any time there, really. But the, the promise, the understanding that this is all going to happen is the, in, the gift of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That, that, that's this, this you know, little glimpse, this little guarantee of what's going to happen. We all love guarantees, right? We, we buy cars that have warranties, right? We're like, we want something's going to last. We want, you know, we want a guarantee. God says, this is the guarantee. So we are always confident, even though we know that as long as we live in these bodies, we are not at home with the Lord. For we live by believing and not by seeing. Yes, we are fully confident, and we would rather be away from these earthly bodies, for then we will be at home with the Lord. So whether we are here in this body or away from this body, our goal is to please him. For we must all stand before Christ to be judged. We will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil we have done in this earthly We aren't completely sure of this timeline as Paul talks about it here and, and we don't know completely what the timeline looks like when we die, right? What we do know from Paul here is that when we die, we are at home with the Lord. When we think back to Jesus on the cross, we have this great interaction between the thief and, and, and Jesus and when the thief on the cross says this in Luke, 2342, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Verse 43 gives us Jesus' response, and Jesus replied, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. What does that mean? Right? I mean, that's kind of the tension that, that we struggle with. Is like, what does that mean? Paul says it that way in 2 Corinthians 5. To be absent from the body or to leave this earthly tent is to be present with the Lord. It's to be with him. So we are going to be with him. We know that. Now, we struggle sometimes with this whole bodily resurrection thing because we're trying to figure out when does this happen because we're just a little weirded out by the fact that our body stays in the ground, but somehow we're in the presence of God when we die. We may not know how all this takes place. We read earlier the... First Thessalonians passage. In, in one passage, we read to be absent with the bodies, be present with the Lord. In 1 Corinthians, we read when Christ returns, those who have died, their bodies are going to rise. So what do, what do we look like in between that time? In between the time we die and the resurrection of our bodies? Unfortunately, the Bible doesn't give us a lot to go on. We know this. Moses and Elijah had bodies at the transfiguration. As far as we know, Moses didn't have a bodily resurrection. But he had a body at the transfiguration. So we know that. We also know from 1 Thessalonians 4.14 that when Jesus returns, he will bring with him all those who have fallen asleep. And while he is yet bringing them with him, simultaneously with that, the dead in Christ will rise first. Now, if you're following me, and you're following those scriptures, that creates a little bit of an intellectual problem. How can he bring with him, yet they're coming out of the grave? Okay? It's a little bit of, a, a little bit of an intellectual problem, right? The, 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 the problem, perhaps, is as we ponder that, that we're pondering the problem within time, and within geometrical 
mention of his baby Lord. When you start to think about eternity, it creates crazy thinking. Because Christ and those who have departed are now outside of time and space. They're in eternity. And so all of a sudden, we've just got this crazy thing. So when we read the scriptures, we always look at how does this figure out within our understanding of life and our world. There's a lot of things we don't understand. And we're going to have to just live life by faith. Right? The same faith it takes to believe in Jesus is the same faith it takes to walk through these moments. And there's a lot of this we completely understand. We use these verses at, at memorials and funerals. and all those we, we communicate this with confidence. Paul communicated it with confidence. He believed he, he was speaking that what God was telling him. And no question, we hang on to that as well. But another thing we see from this 2 Corinthians 5 passage, is in verses 9 and 10, is that we will all face judgment. Now, I'd prefer just to avoid these verses because we don't like judgment. Right? I mean, how many of us like judgment? It's one of those scary moments in the Bible, right, where you read judgment and you're like, if you don't like tests, you definitely don't like this, right? You're like, oh my goodness, am I going to pass? Because that's all this concern. So, so we just have to alleviate that fear, right? If you are a follower of Jesus, you will appear here. This is not the final judgment of Matthew 25. This is the judgment of the righteous. For a little background, Paul is writing to the people at Corinth. And in Corinth, they have this thing called a judgment seat. It was called the Bema, okay? And that's the word that Paul uses here. And the judgment seat called the Bema still stands in the ruins of Corinth. It's one of the few things that still stand in the ruins of Corinth. And I think it's about eight or nine feet high. It, it sort of looks like when you walk into a courtroom today, and if I weren't standing here and I was down on the floor, it would look a little bit like we turned around and looked at Miguel, like we have to look up at him, right? He's sitting higher. Miguel's like, will you stop? Okay, don't look at me. Okay. But it's that upper raise. You would look up. The Roman proconsul, Gallio, sat behind that bema, that judgment, when Paul was brought there by religious opponents and was brought the trial. Basically, two things happen at the Bema. One is judgment of cases, such as Paul's. The other was if someone ran in the games, in the athletic event, and won at the Bema, they were given a laurel wreath, the crown of the winner. Paul says, as he's writing to the Corinthians, knowing that they recognize where the Bema is, down on the marketplace. He says there's coming a day we're all going to appear before Bema, Jesus. The judgment of believers here in 2 Corinthians 5 is not to be confused with the issue of salvation. That has been determined. If we are in Christ, that judgment's already passed. Rather, the judgment here is like the one spoken of in 1 Corinthians 3, where in that day, the works we have built 
upon our life will be seen. Whether we build our life things that are precious like gold and silver and precious stones or upon transitory things, things like wood, hay, and stubble. Paul faces the prospect that some will be saved on the day of judgment because they've confessed Christ. But because in their Christian life, they've never been accountable or disciplined or obedient to God, on that day they will be saved as though through the fire. Their works will be burned up and will prove that their whole Christian life was counted for nothing. The grace of God did for them, they did nothing with. They'll be saved, but nothing more. Here's a scripture which is holding us accountable as Christians for our stewardship, for, for our disciplines, for our priorities, for our relationships, for the giving of our time to the kingdom of God, for the giving of our finances to the kingdom of God, for the service of our life, for the glory of God, and for the cause of Christ. We'll all give an account. At the Bema, it was the winners who were crowned, but the losers were not whipped. So we're not facing a kind of judgment seat for persons on the basis of their lack of work. Here they're chastised or simply not going to have the same rewards as those in faith. What happens when we die? That's the question. If we are followers of Jesus, we will be in the presence of the Lord. What do we look like? I don't know. Are we recognizable? It appears that we are. So the question then becomes is how do you respond to this message? Like what, what is our response? Well, one, live life with eternity in mind. Right? Live life recognizing that this is not what we're living for. We need to get our eyes focused on eternity. Do we really have the perspective Paul? Everything of this life is nothing compared to eternity with Christ. That was Paul's perspective. We must make eternity a reality in our lives like Paul did. Because Paul could say in, first, in Philippians 1, in verse 21, he could say, for to me, living means living for Christ, and dying is even better. But if I live, I can do more fruitful work for Christ. So I really don't know which is better. I'm torn between two desires. I long to go and be with Christ, which would be far better for me. But for your sakes, it's better that I continue to live. Now, that's my prayer, right? That's my prayer for my life. It's also the prayer I have for all of our lives, right? If we live life with that kind of perspective, right, we want to understand hell. We want to understand heaven. We want to have this perspective that says, for me to live means living for Christ. Dying would be better. Like, that's a hard statement for us to say, right? I mean, understand, I've, I've had a little brush with it. But I get it a little bit. My family wasn't 
real thrilled the prospects of me kicking off and going into eternity. They weren't real thrilled about that. My wife didn't like my jokes. Because the first thing I said to her as I'm coming from the cath lab and everything's good and I'm doing fine and I joked about her not being able to use the life insurance. Maybe an anesthesia-induced. I don't know. All I'm saying is, look, for us to live means we have to live with a passion for eternity. For us to live means to live in a way that we recognize we're going to go there. And to live really means that our lives need to make other lives better. Right? When we look at Paul's perspective here, we can't just live life going, whatever. That is not Paul's perspective. It wasn't Jesus' perspective. Their perspectives were, if I'm living, it better be for somebody else's sake that I'm living because I'm going to make their life better. I'm going I'm to help them live. So Paul, like that's either egotistical or confident. I don't know which one you want to put it. But basically, we know that when Paul says that, I'm torn between two desires. I long to go and be with Christ, which is better for me. But for your sakes, it's better that I continue to live. That's why Paul could write what he wrote from prison over and over again. Right? That's why he could write that, because he understood that his life mattered, and it didn't matter where he was living it. Because he was going to use it for the glory of God. Right from a prison cell, he's going to make a difference, right? That, that's an incredible perspective. He, he's going to do something of eternal value from prison. He's not going to whine. He's not going to complain. He recognizes that his pain, his suffering, was making other people's lives better. He was helping others with their walk with Jesus. He knew what he was doing. Would we all get to that place? Would I get to that place? Where I can live my life knowing that by me living, I'm helping others follow Christ. So my question is, whose life is better? Because you're still kicking. we make this the most important thing, when we make this, this life the most important thing, we will do things we won't be proud of in the future. If we live this life seeing everything in the light of eternity, we will make decisions that will make a difference in other people's lives. So that's the challenge today. How are you living I get it. Probably raised more questions about heaven and hell than we answered this morning. That's okay. They're great subjects to study. They motivate us to live life on Christ. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you, God, for this time. Lord, I'm asking personally. Lord, that my life 
would make a difference in other people's lives. That I will live life making decisions that will make other people's lives better. That will help people know you, bring people closer to you, that people would have interactions with you because I still exist. Lord, would you help me to live life with my eyes focused on eternity, recognizing it's a reality, that my life would be a passionate pursuit to glorify God. And in doing that, would encourage others on their journey bring people closer to you, and Lord, that we would do exactly what the end of 2 Corinthians 5 is, that we recognize that we're new creations, but also that it is our responsibility to be people who are your ambassadors, ministers of reconciliation. Lord, help us, I Lord, challenge us. God, convict us. Help us to see how we could change our lives and allow you to work in us and our lives and mean more to other people than they've ever meant before. God, let us not just rest in where we've come from. Let us keep focused and to live every day figuring out how to honor and glorify you and use our lives like Paul did, helping other people in their faith. That we truly could say, it's better that I continue to live for other people's sake. Lord, thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.